I want to ask you this morning, how do you approach a believer who is being tempted to abandon the faith? Chances are, over the course of your life, you've probably had someone that you know who was once professing Christ, and perhaps if you were close enough, they'd begin to share with you, hey, I'm, I'm beginning to think about questioning, I'm beginning to doubt the veracity of the things that I've held dear. Perhaps it was uh, someone that you grew up with in the faith, and it happened in that transition to college and adulthood. Uh, perhaps it was years down the road, something that now is being called deconstruction, when uh, someone who's publicly made a profession of faith, of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, begins to step back from that profession. Think of how you might counsel them. One of our instincts probably would be to uh, begin to, to reason with them to the folly of not believing in the existence of God. So maybe you would bring to them the cosmological argument and you begin to reason the fact that how could we all exist here if there wasn't some God, some uncaused cause that brought us here and you begin to reason and argue through things. Maybe you just begin to point out their folly and you rebuke their unbelief. That would certainly be appropriate. But I want you to remember each week as we come into Hebrews that we have a shepherd who's writing to a group of people who are tempted to leave the faith, and this is how he's addressing it. He's he's addressing beleaguered Christians who want to leave the faith for that which is familiar. And so what what is his approach week in and week out? He just keeps saying, I just need to give you a crystal clear picture of who Jesus is. I don't want to assume and take for granted that you understand enough about him, that you understand his person deeply enough, that it has impacted you in the way that it it must. And so for that person who's professed faith in Christ and is tempting to drift away, the author of Hebrews keeps coming back to, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me remind you who he is, the eternal son who took on flesh and became a man. Let me tell you about his ministry, the fact that he is a great high priest. This is how he counsels weak Christians, to set forth Jesus in all of his majesty and to trust that the Spirit of God will work in the heart of the child of God when they see Christ to increase their faith. I want you to think about how practical this is. Sometimes we'll get into discussions about why we take the particular approach to preaching that we, take, that we take here. If you were to think about it in your life right now, no doubt, you're facing many different issues that would be nice maybe to be talked about. Right? There's marital problems, parenting problems, work problems, financial problems, physical problems. The list goes on and on of the, the challenges that we face. And yet understanding that the best prescription for all of those things, it's not that we're ignoring them, we're saying it's just to open the book and see the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That that's actually going to feed into all of those areas of life that need to be addressed as, as the word of God takes root in your heart and that seed begins to sprout and it begins to impact and flourish throughout all, all of life. And so today's text is getting right at the deepest need of the human soul. What is your deepest need in life? Well, we have a lot of needs. You've got to fill your stomach every day. 
the pleasure of eating breakfast and having milk in my coffee and then finding out from a little messenger later that I was drinking expired milk, that someone had switched the order in the fridge and it was actually eight days old and I just drank it. Um, But that was a physical need, right? I needed nourishment this morning. I ate food. Uh, Some of the needs that you have might be the the need to be cared for or uh, maybe accepted by someone. You have that feeling of a need. Perhaps you have a financial need. But when you think of the deepest need that you have, it is actually access to God. It's a right relationship with God. It's the ability to have communion with God. That's the single most important thing that you need. And so when you think about how it is that you fill that deepest need, you cannot fix it on your own. You cannot relate to God apart from a mediator. Someone who will go between you and God. See, if you're going on the basis of yourself, you could never have access to God. Someone else has to come and give you access to him. And the Jews knew this very, very well, and, and that's in our text today. If you think about how this took place, the nation of Israel was in bondage in Egypt, right? The 12 tribes born of Jacob were in Egypt. So Father Abraham, down, followed the line to Isaac, splits off again, followed the line down to Jacob. He has 12 sons. They're in Egypt. God comes and delivers and rescues those people out of Egypt. And when he gives them the law, he says, I'm going to tell you now what I want you to look like and be like as my people. I'm going to give you instructions for relationships. I'm going to give you instructions for society. I'm going to give you instructions pertaining to government and instructions pertaining to uh, the law system and the civil codes. And I'm going to give you instructions pertaining to worship. And so when God invented all of this design for his people Israel, at the centerpiece of worship was going to be the role of a priest. At the centerpiece of worship in the Mosaic law was going to be the role of a priest. God invented the priesthood. Why did he invent the priesthood? Why do we have to have priests? What's the point of a priest? My friends, the point of a priest was to teach Israel and to teach us that you can only get access to God through someone else. That was the point. The point of the priesthood was to teach you that you need a sponsor. You need someone with credentials, someone to represent you. You need someone to give you access to God. And so for Israel, the priesthood was was a temporary setup from the beginning. It was always planned to only last for a season. And so the purpose of the priesthood then was to establish this pattern so that when God brought Jesus as the ultimate priest, we would have a much fuller and richer understanding of what he did because we see it in relationship to that earthly priesthood. You could think of it this way. We better understand what we got when we got Jesus based upon the fact that we can see the Old Testament priesthood. And so the Old Testament priesthood was preparatory. It's like when you want to teach your kid to ride a bike and you give them a bike that doesn't have pedals. The little balance bike. And so they can kind of run along with a bike and they learn balance. They learn how to 
ride a bike, and, and then after a few months, you're able to hand them the real thing with pedals, and now they understand cycling, and they're able to, to get to the point, which was the bicycle. Right? You wouldn't want to be 35 years old and walking around the neighborhood on a giant balance bike without pedals. Right? The point was, was merely to learn from that experience to get you to the substance, which was to ride a bike. And so the Old Testament priesthood was, was a type. It was to teach us, to help us understand what it was that Jesus was going to do. And yet when Jesus came, it was time to, time to flush the priesthood of Israel. And so the problem for these Christians is that some of them are still attached. They're still attached. It's what they know. It's what has been comfortable. It's what they've associated with worship for so long that now they kind of want to go back to what they had before. And so this writer has been asserting over and over, Jesus is better. He's the better prophet. He's the better revelation. He is the better priest. And so today, as we come to the beginning of chapter 5, what he's going to do is he's already asserted that Jesus is this great high priest, but now he's going to demonstrate how that's anchored in the Old Testament description of who a priest was. If you think of it this way, for Jesus to be a high priest for us, he had to fit the pattern of the priesthood that was already established. He had to fit the bill. And so we're going to see this morning how Jesus fits the pattern of a priest in the Old Covenant. He's not going to be identical. Obviously, he's going to be even better, but he's, he's going to fulfill the, the basic requirements of being a priest. And so when I started this chunk of scripture for study, I said, all right, we're going to hit it. We're going to do chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And as I was studying, I thought, all right, we're going to pull that up a little bit. We're just going to do uh, 1 through 10. So I do a save as and start that doc for later. And I'm studying 1 through 10 and said, all right, we're going to tighten that up a bit to 1 through 6, parse it off again. And now here we are this morning. We're only going to get through the first four verses. So uh, this truth is so rich, my friends. It's, it's nutrient rich. And you know what it's like when you eat a rich piece of food? You, you take a bite or two and a dab will do you because it's, it's so potent. That's how this truth is. It is so edifying and we want to keep savoring it because we see so much about God's love for us in the person of Christ uh, through what the author is doing here. And so we're going to go slow. Last week, or last time we met, we saw in chapter 4 that we have a great high priest, verse 14, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. And therefore we're called to hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So we were encouraged that Jesus cares for us when we sin. Jesus' attitude toward us is, is one of sympathy and not frustration. Uh, that when we come to his throne, we're not met with impatience. Uh, we're not met with him saying, my mercy has run dry and there's no more grace for you, but rather we continually find in our weakness, in our sin, mercy and grace to help in the time of need. And so the author now moves into chapter 5 verse 1 and he's going to begin to give a refresher on the basics 
of the Levitical priesthood. And this is very good for us because you're probably rusty on the basics of the Levitical priesthood. I'm rusty on the basics of the Levitical priesthood. And so I've, I've packaged this as the pattern of the human priesthood to which Christ must fit. These first four verses really show us in a snapshot, a summary of the Old Testament priesthood. And this pattern is exactly what Jesus needs to meet. First, priests are mediators who minister to God's people. Priests are mediators who minister to God's people. Secondly, priests are compassionate toward weak worshipers. Priests are compassionate toward weak worshipers. And finally, priests are appointed into service by God alone. He chooses them, he selects them, he drafts them. And so these four verses really are a setup. And then like a hinge, the author next week is going to show us then that Jesus is appointed, Jesus is compassionate, and Jesus is a mediator. So he's setting up the pattern this time in verses 1 through 4, and then in the remaining verses uh, down through verse 10, he's going to show how Jesus fulfilled that pattern. I invite you to read God's word together with me. Hebrews chapter 5, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have, forbe- I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard Because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This morning we will see the pattern of the priesthood to which Christ must fit. The first point in this pattern is that priests are mediators who minister to God's people. If you were to put an equal sign by the word priest and you wanted the very best next synonym, it would be mediator. Okay, when you think priest, think mediator. That is the very best synonym to understand what that role was all about. He served as a go-between, a representative, the, the one who takes you where you can't go yourself. And in fact, that's exactly what the author says here. Verse 1, for every high priest, every single one of them, so we're, we're laying a foundation, we're going back to a concept that all of the hearers would have known and been familiar with, and yet he's drawing and conjuring that back up in their minds. Every high priest is chosen by God. He's going to say this again in verse 4, and we're going to look at it more extensively there, but God is the one who selects these mediators. And then they come, 
They have a special duty and honor of representing the entire nation on the Day of Atonement. So all the priests minister to the people, but the, the high priest would set him apart was that particular role of officiating the circumstance on the Day of Atonement for the people. And so he's from among men to act in behalf of men. From men for men. Kind of sounds like a, a new soap or some kind of a cologne or something being advertised. This is from men and for men. But the idea here is not masculinity, rather it's simply humanity. It's that the priest at the end of the day is cut from the same cloth as everybody else. He's a human ministering in behalf of humans. And so because he's appointed to act in behalf of men, it's demonstrating that that man could not come to God apart from a priest. Before the priestly line, you would have patriarchs who would serve in behalf of their families. You consider all the way back to, to Job, who probably predated Abraham. He functioned as a priest in his home, making sacrifice for his children. But the idea is that you couldn't simply come and and act in your own behalf in relation to God, you had to come to someone else to do that. In this case, of all of Jacob's 12 sons, there was only one that was able to do that. It was the sons of Levi. It was those who were of the the same blood. They knew all the family lines. They knew which group you belonged to. And so only one of the 12 was the one that had the priests. It was the Levites. And so God begins to make a distinction there that this is exclusive, very special business to come and relate to him. And so that's where we begin to get those distinctions of the clergy and the laity or the sacred versus the secular, the priest versus the people. In fact, it's amazing in Leviticus 16 when God is establishing the rules for the Day of Atonement, he's speaking directly to Moses and giving Moses instructions, but he's telling Moses This is for Aaron. Aaron gets to go into the holy place, not you. You have a different job. You're not not going to be called into that priestly line Aaron is. And so the high priest is given by God for the people so that they can relate to God. And we have a job description of exactly what this priest would do. This was part of his role, not all of it, but it says here that it is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It's to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And give gifts, these were all kinds of things in the Old Testament. These were the things that you would bring out of devotion to God to express your love for him. Anytime you brought something monetarily, you're, you're giving a bit of, of uh, your buying power. You're giving a bit of your resource. You're giving uh, something that's tangible. It, it represents control and freedom and your future and what you trust in. And so offerings would be brought, burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, thank offerings, and all of those would be not brought directly to God. They'd be brought to the priest. And then the priest would offer that in your behalf to the Lord. Then there were the sacrifices. And the sacrifices were specifically to atone for sins. And so uh, that was when you do something uh, that broke God's law. 
You were to come and you were to to make atonement for that by bringing something from either the flock or perhaps the produce of the land. And so you had burnt offerings for sin, sin offerings, you had restitution offerings, and then ultimately you had the day of atonement. And so every single sacrifice is brought as a gift. But you couldn't do this on your own. Do you remember what happened when somebody tried to offer sacrifice on their own? His name rhymes with Paul, okay, Saul. Samuel had told him, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay here for one week. 1 Samuel chapter 10, stay here for one week. When I get here in a week, I'm going to present the offering. Okay, we got a plan. Capiche, we're good. A week shows up. Samuel hasn't shown up yet that morning. Saul begins to see that people are starting to get nervous. They're scattering. The Philistines are coming. I'm nervous. You know what? I'm just going to appoint myself to do the, do the deed right here. And so he goes ahead and he offers sacrifice. He makes sacrifice. And he offers the burnt offering. And Samuel shows up right as Saul is wrapping things up. He says, Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of Yahweh your God with which he commanded you. And in fact, he said, you're going to lose the whole kingdom because of what you did today. Do you see how important it is that, that although it might be within your heart that you want to go and offer something to God, you don't come on your own terms. Okay? The plan is that there will be someone to mediate for you. And so although you would know that God requires a payment for sin, he requires a sacrifice, you'd still recognize that you need someone to represent you and someone designated by God so that you can commune with him. High priests are mediators. They are humans. They're from among men acting in behalf of men. And so you can already see where this is going. This is why Jesus had to become a man. Because for our great high priest to serve in this role, he had to... He had to be chosen from among men to serve in behalf of men. And so the humanity of Christ is part of his solidarity as one of our brothers that he could come and he could minister to us and he could meet our needs in this way as not being from the line of Aaron, but ultimately this great high priest appointed by God. Second part of this pattern is that priests are compassionate toward weak worshipers. First, priests are mediators who minister to God's people, but secondly, they're compassionate toward weak worshipers. My friends, God is full of love and compassion and care toward his children, and this is demonstrated in the priesthood. Look at verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He's able to deal gently. Gently here is a term for compassion. It's the opposite of being cold and indifferent. It's the opposite of being stoic. It's similar to the sympathetic high priest we saw in verses 14 through 16. It's it's a little bit of a different emphasis, but the idea here is that the priest doesn't get angry and irritated with the sinners he's ministering to. The idea is that he has control over his emotions. He can moderate his feelings and keep them under control. 
And the description here of the people that he has to deal with, you see why he needs to be gentle. They're ignorant and they're wayward. Means that they, they're misunderstanding things. They're misguided, untaught in the things of the Lord. You could say beginners, neophytes. He has to deal with them all the time. Those who, who keep lapsing into wrongdoing. And then they're misguided. They, they're going astray. They keep getting off the proper path, getting lost, getting themselves into trouble, being deluded. And the article that connects these two words uh, puts a tight linkage there. So, so really the idea is that these are people who are going astray through ignorance. So think maximum weakness. These are moral creatures that, that keep um, getting befuddled. They keep struggling with unbelief. Uh, they keep believing things that they shouldn't believe, eating spiritual food that they shouldn't eat. And so they keep getting off track spiritually, repeatedly, over and over and over. That's the idea of the imagery. And in fact, those were the very people that the priests were to make a sacrifice for. Leviticus 5 is clear. If anyone sins doing any of the things by, that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, even though he didn't know it, wow. In fact, the provision in the law was, was really for sinning, in a sense, unintentionally. If you had a, a high-handed sin of rebellion, there was no atonement for that. There was no sacrifice. What would have this looked like for a priest to have been gentle. Well, it wasn't that priests were mushy. They weren't accommodating sin. But at the same time, they weren't getting exasperated by it. They weren't impatient. They weren't annoyed. As F.F. Bruce writes, what is needed is the highly valuable quality of forbearance, which deals on the one hand with sin seriously, and on the other hand, with the sinner patiently. What a wonderful description to deal seriously with sin, not ignore it or pretend it's a small issue, and yet at the same time to deal very gently and patiently with that wayward sinner. My friends, this is the kind of ministry, as a side note, that we need in the church. To deal on the one hand very seriously with sin and yet also very patiently. And so the idea here is that the, the priest is to be coming, acting in behalf of the people and doing it not out of frustration and cynicism, but rather gladly. And thinking of the fact that the, the sinner that's coming to offer sacrifice today needs a ministry of grace today. I was thinking about an illustration for this. And in the mid-90s, we were traveling as a family. We were in the Midwest, and I had a sports-related injury while we were on vacation I was playing King Griffey Jr. baseball on Super Nintendo. And um, we didn't have video game consoles growing up because uh, someone in the house struggled with self-control with video games. And so mom and dad just said, you know what? It's just better to not have it. And uh, so I was one of those kids that never learned how to use a controller. And so, if, you know, if I needed to jump, it was like the whole controller was coming out of the game console because that was the way that I moved. And so... I was sitting in a chair uh, with my two of the legs off the ground and I tried to jump or something and I, I fell back and split the back of my head open. And so we got to go to the ER and uh, the doctor was, you know, stitching me up while I lied there face down and 
Um, I remember it seemed like not all of the area was numbed, so some of the stitches weren't hurting very bad as they went in, and some of them were very painful. And uh, while one of the painful stitches was going in, the doctor said to me, didn't your parents ever teach you to keep all four legs of the chair on the floor? And I remember thinking, can we have this conversation in five minutes? I mean, right now, while I'm in pain, while you've got a needle in my head, you're asking me this question. As if you always kept all four legs of the chair on the floor for your whole entire life? Come on, give me a break. What happened? Well, that night, that ER doctor was kind of sick of dealing with foolish children. It wasn't cute to him that night. And so rather, he was, was feeling like, you know what, my patience is kind of worn out with these things, and, and honestly, I'm not terribly empathetic for what you're going through face down on that pillow as I stick a needle in your head. So what was the high priest's job? It was to deal with people. Not as a customer service rep, just on the phone, talking to random strangers and solving their problems, but dealing with people's sin day after day after day, week after week after week, year after year after year, and you begin to realize you need someone who can be gentle. How is it that the high priest didn't become cynical? What would give a a good high priest his ability to be gentle with weak and wayward people? Right there in the text, since he himself is beset with weakness. He himself, utterly emphatic. If you say, I did this, that means you did it. If you say, I did this myself, you're emphasizing. It's emphatic. He himself, he himself is beset with weakness. And beset means to be surrounded or to be clothed with. The word is used of an inescapable weight. When Jesus speaks of those that would have a millstone hung around their neck, the the giant heavy rock that would be used to grind grain. When he talks about the millstone in Mark 9, 42 being hung around someone's neck, that's this word. You're clothed with a millstone. You're wearing it and you can't get it off. Paul used this word in Acts 28.20 when he was talking about wearing a chain. He wasn't wearing the chain uh, of his own volition. He wasn't able to just pop it off to take a shower. He was bound to that chain. And so the idea here is of an inescapable weight. Picture if you've, you've ever gone to take someone to an x-ray, uh, right? What do they do? They put on the lead apron, And you strap it on. You have to wear it for about 30 seconds and then you get to take it off. What if you're you're now relegated to wearing a lead apron all the time, every day? It's going to inhibit your ability to walk and run and jump. How would you like to go swimming with a lead apron on? And so the the picture here is that that the priest is, is wearing moral weakness, a propensity to sin that follows him around like a lead apron. I want to obey. I want to be righteous. I want to honor God. Yet every day I wake up and I have this moral lead apron covering my body. See, the priest was a son of Adam, born in sin. It was part of his nature to be compassed with infirmity. And so these priests, even the high ones, wore moral weakness like a chain or a millstone 
or a lead apron weighing them down. Every single high priest got tempted to sin and bought the lie and at some point acted on it. Every priest overslept for work and showed up with a bad attitude at some point. Every priest assuredly tried desperately to form new habits and disciplines only to eventually fail in maintaining them. Every priest, I'm sure, had had at one point vowed to do better and then messed up again. Years into the life of a high priest, he would have still found some of the same tendencies to always be nipping at his heels to return to the old familiar sins. Still doubting God and believing Satan's lies years after seeing his faithfulness. And yes, even still loving other things more than loving God himself. He was beset. Beset by weakness, an inescapable weight of moral weakness that he wore day in and day out. And so this made the high priest compassionate. See, when he went to help a weak human, he was a weak human himself. He understood the weakness. So it kept him from getting annoyed and weary with sinners, the fact that he was a sinner too. Think about how weak the priests were. Just think about the very first priest, Aaron. We are just talking about this passage the other night with the with the kiddos. Imagine that I'm in Israel. I hear the message from Aaron and I go back to the kids. All right, turn in your earrings. All right, not because of a, a social statement, but boys wore earrings in the old covenant. I need your earrings, Truett. Okay, Griff's, hand them in, lids. All right, Brandon, I got your earrings. Okay, Susie, I know those are really meaningful uh, to you. I need your anniversary earrings. Okay, you hand them over. I've got to take these to Aaron, our high priest. Why? Well, Yahweh's giving us his law. Moses has been gone for 40 days, and Aaron said that we need to bring him all of our jewelry so he can make it into a golden calf so that we have something to put up before us to worship in place of the unseen God. The very first priest. It's not a small mistake. That's a very, very massive mistake. And you understand the significance of of this is the fact that the priest is a representative for the people. In fact, Leviticus 4.3 says, if an anointed priest who sins, then he brings guilt on all the people. And so for all of the benefits that we would experience from having a, a high priest, there's also some liabilities. Like when he comes up with the idea of casting all of our treasures into a molten image rather than worship the living God. See, if the high priest goes down, we all go down. Like priest, like people, when he's on point, that's great, but what about when he blows it? And so you see, for as nice and comforting as it, it might be that I have a priest who, he's weak, I'm weak, so he's sympathetic, and I appreciate that. He's gentle with me also means that I, 
I can't really trust or entrust myself to that priest ultimately. Because at the end of the day, he's just a man beset with weakness like me. See, it would have reminded the priest all the time of his own weakness. Because he had to keep offering sacrifices. Look at verse 3. Because of this. Because of what? Because of the weakness, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And it is astounding. It is exhausting to read through all of the steps that had to take place for consecration. I mean, just in the initial installation of the priesthood, Moses comes and he says, okay, Aaron, we're going to do this thing. It's time to consecrate you. What do we need? All right, first we need a bull. Then we need two rams. Um, Then we need a lot of gluten. We need uh, wafers. We need uh, cakes. And we need unleavened bread. All of those things made from fine wheat flour. We're going to get it together And now we're going to go and we're going to consecrate the priests. We're going to deal with that weak sinner. What did they do? Well, first we had to wash Aaron up with water and his sons. And then they had to put on the regalia, the fancy clothes, the turban and the ephod and the sash. And then oil would would be poured on his head to anoint him. And that would be a sign of him being appointed. And then the bloody mess would begin. See, first the bull would be killed. And the blood would be taken and it would be sprinkled on the horns of the altar from the bull. And then all the rest of the blood from the, from the beast would be poured out around the altar. So now we have blood on the horns. We have blood in the trough around the altar. And we cut out all the internal organs and we'd, we'd uh, take the kidneys and the liver and all the fat and burn those separately. And then we'd take the meat and the skin and the entrails and we'd put that outside and then we'd burn that. And there would be a stench with that. And we take the ram, and now we kill the ram after we lay hands on it. What do we do? Well, we take that blood, and now we throw it on the sides of the altar. So now there's blood on the horns of the altar. There's blood in the trough. There's blood on the sides of the altar. Then we'd cut it up into pieces, and we'd burn it. Then we take the second ram. What do we do to the second ram? Lay hands on it again. The sign that we're consecrating ourselves. Now this one, we take the blood and we start putting it on people. So everybody gets a dab of blood on their right earlobe, on their right thumb, and on their right big toe of Aaron and his sons. And then lest you think we're finished, we have to grab some oil and mix the oil with the blood, and then we start splattering it on everyone's clothes. You get in the picture, it would look like a massacre. You have blood on your skin, you have blood all over your clothes. You have blood all over the ground. You have blood on the altar. You have blood on the top of the altar. And all of that was just to demonstrate what we see right here on perfect display in verses 1 through 3. We're reading about men and sins and ignorance and waywardness and weakness and sins. See, all of that was to recognize that, that this priesthood can't come to God even on his own right. He must have a sacrifice because he himself is a sinner. My friends, the priesthood was given to God's people, not as a punishment, but as a gift. And yet, for all of the gift that he was, even as a compassionate mediator, he was still filled with moral shortcomings. And so even the human priesthood was to work in the hearts of God's people the desire for a better priesthood. 
Do you think, you know what I really want? You know what would be so wonderful? A priest that would never fail. A priest that could just walk into the presence of God and doesn't need all of the bloodbath. A priest that doesn't need a sacrifice for himself. A priest with no moral shortcomings, never has a bad day. Jesus, of course, is that high priest, ever and always without sin. See, he's a mediator, he's compassionate. Now we'll see that the final pattern of this priesthood is that priests are always appointed into service by God alone. God initiates the priesthood. It's his idea, it's his plan. He's the one that sets people in place. Verse four says, no one, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So you don't just aspire to be a priest and then appoint yourself to it, right? Aaron didn't say, Moses, here's what we'll do. You speak to the people, you mediate directly with God, you do the law part, I'll handle all of the the interaction of the priestly work. Now, text is very clear, Exodus 28, God called Moses and said, Moses, go get your brother Aaron, I have a job for him. It was God who appointed this. There was no election process, Aaron for priesthood with signs and campaigning. There was no voting among Israel. This wasn't even something that people came up with. If you remember when Israel got a king, in part was because they kept grumbling and complaining against the Lord. We want a king just to be like all the other nations. They never came to the Lord and said, we want a priest. Rather, the Lord said, go get Aaron, your brother, and his sons, with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Exodus 28.1. You say, well, maybe that was a one-off. Maybe it was just Aaron and his sons, but other people could do it too. No, number 1640 is clear. No outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord. And so this had to be God's appointment. He's the one that chose Aaron to be the priest. He's the one that chose Aaron to be the priest, the guy who couldn't hold it together for a few weeks while Moses was up on the mountain. Aaron, the guy who was unable to enter the promised land and got kept out. Aaron was appointed as God's man. And so if you were a a Jew hearing this, you would have had an affinity for the priesthood. You would have grown up going to the temple in Jerusalem. There would have been sights and sounds and smells that you associated with beneficial spiritual experiences. We talked about this a little bit at the, at the beginning uh, of our series in Hebrews, right? Imagine if we just said, hey, we're going to take uh, Christmas and we're going to torch the whole thing. We're going to take Easter. We're going to torch the whole thing. We're not going to celebrate it anymore. Some of you might be very happy with that. I know there's a, a Baptist pastor a couple hundred years ago that said, Every Sunday is supposed to be Easter. We shouldn't designate a special day for that. Every Sunday we should be celebrating the resurrection of the Lord. But the idea of, of, of taking a special day that's commemorated where you had family tradition and you had sights and sounds and smells and things that you were accustomed to. I mean, even to think of the smell of a burnt offering. That was a particular experience that you would have had. And you would have known leaving the Day of Atonement the relief of being freshly reminded that whatever year it was, 1442 was in the books, and my sins are forgiven. And then what happens? On the way home, you didn't pack enough dinner, and you start to get hangry, 
and you snap at someone in your family and that cleansed conscience right out the window. It was that fragile. That fragile. And so when you think about Jesus as the high priest, the author is saying, don't you dare for a second Go back to that priesthood that served some benefit but was always beset with flaws and weakness. It was simply designed to show you how much we need a faithful high priest and to give you an idea of what his mediatorial and compassionate ministry for you looks like. My friends, this is how God wants us to understand Jesus. That he was appointed by God to act on your behalf and my behalf. That he's not angry with you when you sin but rather he is dealing gently with those who are ignorant and wayward. Not because he's sinfully weak, but rather he weathered every temptation and was sinless. And then, of course, when he offered a sacrifice, it wasn't for his own sins. It was himself for the sins of all of us. See, Jesus was appointed as God's high priest, selected for us by God, and he is compassionate toward us in our sin. Jesus came to fulfill and abolish that entire pattern that was set, and the author's saying, I want you to see how much better Jesus Christ is than anything the old covenant could offer. And don't you dare for a moment begin to shrink back in unbelief. My friends, this is your God. He came and gave you access. And so now, you already have that. You don't need access through a man anymore because you have access through Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness to us. Thank you for uh, tenderly watching over us, Lord, and providing us with something that we feel our need for and we also feel our unworthiness uh, to experience, namely kindness and generosity. Father, I pray that for each of us in this room, you would convince our hearts that uh, we are acceptable before you because of the man, Jesus Christ, and because he came as the final high priest, and because his work was final. Uh, Lord, this sermon is, is essentially similar to what the next 20 sermons are going to be in Hebrews, um, and that's not because uh, we're, <laughs> we would tend to, to believe that that might be uh, too much redundancy. And yet, Lord, what we see is that in the frailty of our own hearts and our tendency to unbelief, uh, we need to hear this message, not once, not twice, Lord, but over and over and over and over again until uh, deep down within us, we, we believe it and we feel it and we think it. So, Lord, we want to worship you um, now because of this work. We love you. Amen.